The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Micah 2, 1-13. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly, with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from the delight of their houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher of this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord as at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we um, thank you for this time this morning and that little babies remind us um, that you are real and true and good. Um, And we ask that no matter where we're at this morning on the spectrum of belief, we pray that you would meet us. Um, Some of us are coming in here this morning because uh, we're here every Sunday morning, and yet our faith is barely hanging on. Some of us are in here this morning and have no idea why we're here, and maybe can't wait to leave. And Lord, uh, no matter where we're at, you've promised to meet us. And so we ask that you this morning, by your spirit, would be our good shepherd and our great friend and our dear Savior, and you would come and soften our hearts and open our ears and give us eyes to see the goodness and beauty of your gospel message that you love broken, sinful people and you have promised to restore us and redeem us. We pray these things in your name, amen. Hey guys, um, uh, almost none of you know who I am, so let me introduce myself. My name is Chase Dawes. 
And I'm the new RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt. Uh, and my wife, Holly, and I, who is here, and our, our three little boys, Gabe, Bo, and Griffey, we moved here over the summer back to the South. We're from the South originally. We moved here from California. Um, the past five years, I served as the RUF campus minister at UC Berkeley. And that was a wonderful and beautiful time. A lot of times when I talk about Berkeley to Southern folk, they look at me perplexed, like, why on earth did anybody go there? It's a wonderful place to see God at work. So I'd encourage you, if you're ever out there, have an eye towards that. Um, but we're thankful to be here, and we've loved Vanderbilt. And this is actually our church home now. So you will be seeing us a lot, and hopefully that's a good thing. Hopefully you like us. Um, so I'm gonna jump in this morning. I wanna start by asking you a question, um, get a bit vulnerable this morning. When's the last time that you got really angry, like embarrassingly angry? Uh, I'm not gonna ask you to share, nor am I gonna share. If you wanna know any of those stories, ask my wife, Holly. She'd be happy to throw me under the bus, I'm sure. Um, but we all have an image to uphold, so we don't need to tell about our angry stories yet. But my point is, is that most of us don't like anger. Uh, in fact, if you do like anger, there's probably something wrong. We don't like meeting angry people. We don't really like ourselves when we get angry. Uh, and to the point of this passage, and, and most of all, we don't really like the idea of an angry God. Um, Bertrand Russell uh, was a philosopher in the 19th and 20th century who, let's just be real here, I've barely read any of, I just needed an opening illustration. Um, he wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And one of the reasons he gave in that essay is, I'm not a Christian because I can't do this angry God thing. I'm not into that. Homie, don't play that. Um, he didn't say homie, but um, he was not into the angry God thing. And the idea of an angry God, as many of you are aware, particularly in the Southeast, it's funny, I didn't encounter this much at Berkeley, uh, but particularly in the Southeast, the idea of an angry God is the reason why so many people have left the faith or why so many people are deconstructing, if you're familiar with that concept, or so many people have modified their views of Christianity so much that it's hardly even recognizable. An angry God is not something that sits well in our stomachs. Um, now, we just read from the Bible, and the reason that we do that is because we believe that if you wanna know who God is, the best way to do that is to go to the Bible because it's an account of exactly who God is and what he's done in the world, and this is how we find out and get to know who God is. And so it might be weird that this morning we read a passage that seemed to be all about God's anger. But I wanna suggest to you this morning that if you really want to know somebody, like intimately know somebody, you should know what makes them angry. And the reason why is because anger is always an indicator of what we love. Anger is always an indicator of what we love most. If you are always indifferent, if you're always calm and measured, if you're always kind of apathetic, then perhaps it's not that you're civilized and self-controlled. Perhaps it's that you lack love. 
And so in reality, this passage that we just read is not first and foremost about God's anger. This passage is about God's love. God's love for his people. An old uh, mentor of mine when I was in seminary used to say that he was always worried about a marriage when there was no conflict. Because lack of conflict in a marriage doesn't actually uh, mean harmony. Lack of anger in a marriage does not mean harmony. It actually means apathy. It means that the love is gone and perhaps you've given up. And so what we see here in Micah 2 is a God who hasn't given up on you and a God who hasn't given up on me. And it is a God who is still moved to anger because what he loves most is at great risk. And so I wanna unpack for us this morning uh, a few reactions that we see from God so that we might know even more this morning just who this God is and how much he loves us. Okay, so what's the first thing that we see here in this passage? The first thing that we see. First thing that we encounter is that sin destroys the world. Sin destroys the world. Now, one way to think about the prophets, there's a lot of prophets in the Bible. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, because of the size of the book. It's not because of his relevance or lack of importance, as Stacy has mentioned several times over the past few weeks. One of the ways to think about the prophets is that their job is to wake us up. Uh, the prophets are in many ways kind of like my four-year-old son, Bo, uh, whose job apparently is to wake us up early in the morning, every morning, because when he wakes up and gets out of bed, it is like a herd of rhinos that are running down the stairs and I don't know how his little body generates so much thunderous noise and probably structural damage to our home, but it does, and it wakes us up. And that's what the prophets are like. They are waking us up to the destructive effect of sin. And what they're doing is that they're painting this vivid picture for us that sin destroys the world. It is corrosive and parasitic, and it tears at the fabric of our lives and our relationships and our communities and our society and our institutions, and honestly, with each word that they utter, this picture seems to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's hard to stomach, but I would argue this. We need that. We need the prophets. Because the prophets will not pretend that everything is okay. And we need people like that in our lives that won't pretend with us that everything is okay. In Micah's day, uh, Israel's leaders were, were increasingly corrupt. It wasn't just theologically and spiritually. They certainly were. They were worshiping idols and basically crafting a religion of their own doing. But they were also socially corrupt. If you look at the first two verses, listen to what it says. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in their power, in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. 
So the picture that Micah is painting here is not just somebody who's like stealing a cell phone. I mean, that's, that's bad too. What Micah is saying here is these folks are literally stealing generational livelihood. Their fields generated their income, their ability to barter, to acquire um, resources and goods. And without those things, these folks have nothing. Their children have nothing. Let me see if I can be just a bit more vivid here. What this means concretely is it means that, that fathers would be absent because their livelihood was stripped away and so they had to find any job that they could and functionally they would become slaves just to get by. This meant that mothers would go hungry and wouldn't have proper clothing because they were giving it to their children just so they'd have a few more crumbs or an extra blanket at night. This meant that parents would bury a child who died from lack of nourishment. And this meant that children were burying parents who died from lack of nourishment. This meant that that children and grandchildren and their children would be born into generational poverty and it was an endless cycle of destruction. Families and fathers and mothers and children and grandchildren and on and on and on and on it goes. And what is Micah telling us? Micah is telling us that sin destroys people's lives. It destroys the world. That was true in Micah's time And that is true now. There are corrupt and evil practices that go on without and outside of the church. And there are corrupt and evil practices that go on within the church and they have generational consequences. To give just one personal example, um, my father who, who passed away a couple of years ago, beautiful soul, undoubtedly a Christian, but my dad was in prison from uh, the time I was in, or the time I was three years old to ninth grade. And one study shows that children of incarcerated parents are five times more likely to be incarcerated during their lifetime. And that's, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, Now, thankfully, that's not part of my story, but it easily could have been. Statistics say that Perhaps it should have been. Or think about it this way. Think about who historically in America has been marginalized and oppressed and pushed to the periphery of society and how that reality to this very day impacts their educational opportunities, their employment opportunities, their social mobility, their access to capital, and dare I say, even impacts their ability to step foot in some churches with any sense of comfort. That is a reality whether we want to believe it or not. Our sin has generational consequences. Our sin and brokenness destroys our lives and people's lives. Our sin destroys the world. And the prophets, the prophets won't pretend with us that it doesn't. They're gonna wake us up. That's what they do. And so because of all of this that Mike is talking about, because of this sin, because of the curse, because of the fall, God is going to act. He's gonna do something about it. The first thing that we see in Micah 2 
in this passage is that sin destroys the world. And the second thing that we see is God in action because sin deserves God's judgment. God's anger is kindled and he is going to act because sin deserves his judgment. Now, if you're a millennial like me, uh, or younger, a Gen Z, or even younger, you are probably or might be really uncomfortable right now. Now, that's not to say that we're the only ones. If you're a boomer or older, you're free to react the way that you need to as well. But my point is, is that we don't do well when we think about God's anger. We don't do well when we think about a God who has wrath or judgment. And some of that is fair. Some of that is fair because especially in the South, many of us grew up in churches that used the idea of an angry God to scare us and coerce us into behaving a certain way, to create a sort of behavioralism. And that is not God. That is not Christianity. That is actually spiritual abuse. And I want to be sensitive to that, and I want to acknowledge that, but I also want to say that that is not what's going on in this passage. What we see here, what we see here is a God who protects what he loves. What we see here is a God who protects what he loves, who meets injustice with justice, who meets evil with righteousness, and who meets corruption with liberation. And you know, it's kind of funny because I think in in our cultural moment, we're kind of inconsistent on this point. Let me me try to explain what I mean. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that that God's judgment and anger and, and wrath, whatever you wanna call it, has often been the very thing that's caused many people to leave the faith or to deconstruct their faith. And typically, the logic is something like this. You know, they'll say, we'll say, I, I can't square the idea of a loving God and a judging God. If he's a loving God, then surely he wouldn't judge us. Surely he would at least tolerate us. You hear that a lot. But then something really interesting happens. It's like as soon as we're done with that conversation, we turn our social media feeds into these like little quasi minor prophet type books where we call out everybody and we try to wake up everybody. And it's just this endless, you're wrong. Your opinions are wrong. My opinions are right. You're evil. You're racist. You're a misogynist, you're a bigot, you're sexist, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican. I mean, you wanna talk about anger. You wanna talk about righteous indignation and a sense of judgment, just get on Twitter. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, a lot of the stuff that people are upset about, it's actually worth being upset about. It's wrong for women to be mistreated and sexually exploited. We should get angry about that. It's wrong for people of color to be targeted and marginalized and discarded. We should be furious about that. We should repent of that. It's wrong when when toxic nationalism 
motivates countries like Russia to invade Ukraine. These are worthy of our anger and our judgment and our demands for justice because you know what it means if we don't care about these things? Do you know what it means if we don't care about any of that stuff? It means we don't have love. It means we don't love people. And now I think we're actually getting somewhere because if love requires us to respond in these things, if love requires us to have judgment on something, to assess something, and whether or not it is good and beautiful and true and worthy of praise, how much more should God respond? Because if God is who he says he is, then he ought to be even more outraged. He ought to care even more than we do. He ought to be angry. He ought to judge these evil acts. He ought to bring justice because if God doesn't, it would mean that he is not loving. We get that deep in our bones. Whether you're a Christian or not, we understand that on some deep fundamental level. And you see, This passage is not primarily about the anger of God. This passage is about the love of God because God loves the world and sin destroys the world. And therefore, God hates sin because it kills what he loves. Right, that's the logic of the passage Um, We read verses one and two, and then at the very beginning of verse three, it pivots. God jumps in, and and the first word is therefore. And when you read your Bible, you're always supposed to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And it's there to show us that God will act and respond, right? He will respond to this injustice. He will devise his own plan, as it says in verse three, and the predators and the abusers and the perpetrators will have no way out. They will pay for what they've done and justice will roll down because the God of love loves. And this is what love looks like sometimes. And I actually think when we sit in that long enough, guys, when we sit in that long enough, I think it makes belief in God easier because that means that he cares more about injustice in the world than I do. That means that he cares more about love than I do despite what I hashtag. He cares more about this than we do. And that means that we can trust him. That means that he's good. And I would venture to say that we have no business. Uh, This is a great way to talk to college students too. I think this resonates well with them. We have no business entertaining, let alone worshiping a God that one, isn't angered by injustice in the world, and two, isn't capable of doing something about it. But the God of the Bible is both. And he plots and he plans to protect that which he loves. That's a good thing. But I don't wanna get distracted by that. That is good news. I think that's the kind of God that we want. But Micah's agenda is trying to paint uh, maybe a, a different picture. Or the main point of what he's trying to get across is slightly different. 
What he's trying to paint here is a picture that everything is really, really bad. Things are bad. The destructive, corrosive effects of sin are everywhere. And they are inside of everything and nobody is innocent. This is not just clean, squeaky little Christian people sitting in their temple saying all the bad people out there keep stealing my property. No, this text right here specifically is about people in the church. People in the church. These are God's people. Verse eight says this, lately my people have risen up as an enemy. We had become enemies of God. Destruction was everywhere. The text says there was no place to rest. That's how bad it had gotten. And when we look at our lives with the honesty that the prophets have, how do we not come to the same conclusion? When we look at our lives with this kind of honesty, how do we not come to the same conclusion? You know, I came from Berkeley and a lot of people like to pick on Berkeley for some of the odd things about that area of the country. And I'll give you that. There are some odd things about that. But something that's unique about this part of the country is that people love to be really pretty. And something, I'm Southern too, so I'm picking on myself as well. We love to be really pretty. And we love to hide behind the prettiness. Because we don't have an honesty like the prophets that says, you know what, my life is kind of a disaster. We heard about this in our invitation to confession. We don't have to pretend anymore. And I don't think I'm being that dramatic here. Uh, I heard a new phrase the other day, rage cleaning. I actually saw it on my Instagram feed. Somehow it's like picking up on maybe some mental health stuff going on in my life and it's populating my feed with like, you need help, dude. Um, so rage cleaning. Um, have, you, have you guys heard of this? So it's this idea um, or this reality uh, when you have beautiful, wonderful little kids like I do, and you come home and your house looks like Hurricane Katrina had just come through it, and your anxiety out of nowhere just starts to bubble up and you think, like, I have to control something, and so you start cleaning just as quickly as you can. It's called rage cleaning. And confession, I do that. So pray for Holly, I do that. And so I read Micah 2, and I'm thinking, bro, I don't need to steal a plot of land or a farm or a chicken to cause generational trauma. All I have to do is go vacuum my house and my kids need therapy. And they will, and I will gladly foot the bill for that um, if I make enough money. Um, now, I'm, I'm being silly, but uh, my point is that, that that's how easy it is for us to create fractures in our families and fractures in our friendships and fractures in our lives. That is what sin does. It is corrosive and it fractures the very fabric of life. Sin destroys the world. And we all know it, sin deserves God's judgment. That's what we learn. That's the first two things that we see here in Micah 2, that sin destroys the world and sin deserves God's judgment. But we see something really interesting in the last two verses. It's like out of nowhere in these last two verses, we encounter this kind of unexpected hope, this unexpected deliverance. 
Micah, um, Micah is a really interesting book because the Hebrew is kind of everywhere in it. And it, it poses a lot of problems and, and uh, hurdles to scholars. And so translations can be kind of tricky, uh, but also the structure and placement of certain verses puzzles scholars. So in verses 12 and 13, the last two in this chapter, it's made many commentators wonder, like, what in the world is going on here? Why is it that Micah goes on and on and on and on with these judgment verses and pronouncements, and then out of nowhere, his tone just shifts drastically to this, like, like some sort of hope. And it is so drastic that it's led some critical scholars to conclude that, that these verses were actually probably just later additions to suit some agenda. Like maybe Micah had failed in some sort of like prophetic attempt. So they were just kind of cleaning up his, his mess by like sticking in a little editorial note maybe centuries later. But I think when you read the entire book of Micah, because this is a continual pattern through Micah, this kind of abrupt verses, I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think it was added later by some sort of editorial group. I, I think the structure is actually intentional. And here's why. I think there's a real sense of hopelessness that Micah wants us to feel in the first 11 verses. He wants us to realize that the problem is so bad and that if we're to have any hope at all, it's gonna have to be a hope that comes out of nowhere. If we're to have any hope at all, it's gonna have to be a hope that comes out of nowhere, just like these verses come out of nowhere. And do you wanna know what these verses that come out of nowhere, do you know what it points us to? It points us to a savior who comes out of nowhere. Because Jesus would be like a shepherd king, like the shepherd king mentioned here, similar to the ones promised in 12 and 13, who breaks in to this world like a thrill of hope, to quote the old song. And he gathers to himself a people that is dispersed and displaced by sin and ruin. And then he takes those people and he leads them out and delivers them and conquers all of our enemies. And get this, ourselves included. You see, Jesus, Jesus had to save us even from ourselves. This is a passage about the people of God and how they deserve God's judgment because of our actions. And Jesus comes in like an unexpected hope to save us even from ourselves, even at great cost to himself. You know, that is why this book is called Micah. Stacy has mentioned it several times over the past Weeks, but Micah means who is like this God? 
That's what his name means. Whose love for his people is so wide and deep that he would bear his own judgment that we deserve so that in his death we would have life. Who is like that God? Who is like that God? And you see hints of this unexpected Savior all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the book of Micah. It's even in the first verse of the first chapter when it says, the word of the Lord came to Micah. And you know what that means? You know what that points to? A greater word. The word of God himself, the logos, as we hear about in John 1, who became flesh and entered in and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved to die, who bore the punishment and the judgment that we deserved. Who is like that God? That is a God who did not give up on us because his love motivated and animated his actions so much that he broke in to rescue us, even at great cost to himself, to love us back to life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that your love is one that knows no bounds. And from eternity past into eternity future, you have loved us so much that you've covenanted with us that nothing we do, either last night or this night or in the nights to come, nothing that we do can change your love for us. And you love us so much that you come to get us and lead us and change us into the people that you long for us to be so that we might be a blessing to your world and bring glory to you. And so Jesus, as we wait patiently for that process to take root in our lives, would you be beautiful to us and would you meet us in the valleys of our lives and the struggles of our lives and help us not to pretend that we've got it all together, but rather that we have a savior and a good shepherd who's leading us all the way. We pray this in your name. Amen.